Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. The Everlasting Man by G.K. Chesterton Part 2 on the Man Called Christ Chapter 2 The Riddles of the Gospel Part 1 To understand the nature of this chapter, it is necessary to recur to the nature of this book. The argument which is meant to be the backbone of the book is of the kind called the reductio ad absurdum. It suggests that the results of assuming the rationalist thesis are more irrational than ours, but to prove it we must assume that thesis. Thus, in the first section I often treated man as merely an animal to show that the effect was more impossible than if he were treated as an angel. In the sense in which it was necessary to treat man merely as an animal, it is necessary to treat Christ merely as a man. I have to suspend my own beliefs, which are much more positive, and assume this limitation even in order to remove it. I must try to imagine what would happen to a man who did really read the story of Christ as the story of a man, and even of a man of whom he had never heard before. And I wish to point out that a really impartial reading of that kind would lead, if not immediately to belief, at least to a bewilderment of which there is really no solution except in belief. In this chapter, for this reason, I shall bring in nothing of the spirit of my own creed. I shall exclude the very style of diction, and even of lettering, which I should think fitting in speaking in my own person. I am speaking as an imaginary heathen human being, honestly staring at the gospel story for the first time. Now, it is not at all easy to regard the New Testament as a New Testament. It is not at all easy to realize the good news as new. Both for good and evil, familiarity fills us with assumptions and associations, and no man of our civilization, whatever he thinks of our religion, can really read the thing as if he had never heard of it before. Of course, it is in any case utterly unhistorical to talk as if the New Testament were a neatly bound book that had fallen from heaven. It is simply the selection made by the authority of the Church from a mass of early Christian literature. But apart from any such question, there is a psychological difficulty in feeling the New Testament as new. There is a psychological difficulty in seeing those well-known words simply as they stand and without going beyond what they intrinsically stand for. And this difficulty must indeed be very great, for the result of it is very curious. The result of it is that most modern critics and most current criticism, even popular criticism, makes a comment that is the exact reverse of the truth. It is so completely the reverse of the truth that one could almost suspect that they had never read the New Testament at all. We have all heard people say a hundred times over, for they seem never to tire of saying it, that the Jesus of the New Testament is indeed a most merciful and humane lover of humanity, but that the Church has hidden this human character in repellent dogmas and stiffened it with ecclesiastical terrors till it has taken on an inhuman character. 
This is, I venture to repeat, very nearly the reverse of the truth. The truth is that it is the image of Christ in the churches that is almost entirely mild and merciful. It is the image of Christ in the Gospels that is a good many other things as well. The figure in the Gospels does indeed utter, in words of almost heartbreaking beauty, his pity for our broken hearts, but they are very far from being the only sorts of words that he utters. Nevertheless, they are almost the only kind of words that the Church in its popular imagery ever represents him as uttering. That popular imagery is inspired by a perfectly sound popular instinct. The mass of the poor are broken, and the mass of the people are poor. And for the mass of mankind, the main thing is to carry the conviction of the incredible compassion of God. But nobody with his eyes open can doubt that it is chiefly this idea of compassion that the popular machinery of the church does seek to carry. The popular imagery carries a conviction of the incredible compassion of God. But nobody with his eyes open can doubt that it is chiefly this idea of compassion that the popular machinery of the church does seek to carry. The popular imagery carries a great deal to excess the sentiment of gentle Jesus, meek and mild. It is the first thing that the outsider feels and criticizes in a pieta, or a shrine of the sacred heart. As I say, while the art may be insufficient, I am not sure that the instinct is unsound. In any case, there is something appalling, something that makes the blood run cold, in the idea of having a statue of Christ in wrath. There is something insupportable even to the imagination in the idea of turning the corner of a street or coming out into the spaces of a marketplace to meet the petrifying petrifaction of that figure as it turned upon a generation of vipers, or that face as it looked at the face of a hypocrite. The church can reasonably be justified, therefore, if she turns the most merciful face or aspect towards men. But it is certainly the most merciful aspect that she does turn. And the point is here that it is very much more specially and exclusively merciful than any impression that could be formed by a man merely reading the New Testament for the first time. A man simply taking the words of the story as they stand would form quite another impression, an impression full of mystery and possibly of inconsistency but certainly not merely an impression of mildness. It would be intensely interesting, but part of the interest would consist in its leaving a good deal to be guessed at or explained. It is full of sudden gestures evidently significant, except that we hardly know what they signify, of enigmatic silences, of ironical replies. The outbreaks of wrath, like storms above our atmosphere, do not seem to break out exactly where we should expect them, but to follow some higher weather chart of their own. The Peter whom popular church teaching presents is very rightly the Peter to whom Christ said in forgiveness, Feed my lambs. He is not the Peter upon whom Christ turned as if he were the devil, crying in that obscure wrath, Get thee behind me, Satan. Christ lamented with nothing but love and pity over Jerusalem, which was to murder him. We do not know what strange spiritual atmosphere or spiritual insight 
led him to sink Bethsaida lower in the pit than Sodom. I am putting aside for the moment all questions of doctrinal inferences or expositions, orthodox or otherwise. I am simply imagining the effect on a man's mind if he did really do what these critics are always talking about doing, if he did really read the New Testament without reference to orthodoxy, and even without reference to doctrine. He would find a number of things which fit in far less with the current unorthodoxy than they do with the current orthodoxy. He would find, for instance, that if there are any descriptions that deserve to be called realistic, they are precisely the descriptions of the supernatural. If there is one aspect of the New Testament Jesus in which he may be said to present himself eminently as a practical person, it is in the aspect of an exorcist. There is nothing meek and mild. There is nothing even in the ordinary sense mystical about the tone of the voice that says, Hold thy peace and come out of him. It is much more like the tone of a very businesslike lion tamer or a strong-minded doctor dealing with a homicidal maniac. But this is only a side issue for the sake of illustration. I am not now raising these controversies, but considering the case of the imaginary man from the moon, to whom the New Testament is new. Now the first thing to note is that if we take it merely as a human story, it is in some ways a very strange story. I do not refer here to its tremendous and tragic culmination, or to any implications involving triumph in that tragedy. I do not refer to what is commonly called the miraculous element, for on that point philosophies vary, and modern philosophies very decidedly waver. Indeed, the educated Englishman of today may be said to have passed from an old fashion, in which he would not believe in any miracles unless they were ancient and adopted a new fashion in which he will not believe in any miracles unless they are modern. He used to hold that miraculous cures stopped with the first Christians, and is now inclined to suspect that they began with the first Christian scientists. But I refer here rather specially to unmiraculous, and even to unnoticed and inconspicuous parts of the story. There are a great many things about it which nobody would have invented for they are things that nobody has ever made any particular use of, things which, if they were remarked at all, have remained rather as puzzles. For instance, there is that long stretch of silence in the life of Christ up to the age of thirty. It is, of all silences, the most immense and imaginatively impressive. But it is not the sort of thing that anybody is particularly likely to invent in order to prove something. And nobody, so far as I know, has ever tried to prove anything in particular from it. It is impressive, but it is only impressive as a fact. There is nothing particularly popular or obvious about it as a fable. The ordinary trend of hero worship and myth making is much more likely to say the precise opposite. It is much more likely to say, as I believe some of the Gospels rejected by the Church do say, that Jesus displayed a divine precocity and began his mission at a miraculously early age. And there is indeed something strange in the thought that he, who of all humanity needed least preparation, seems to have had most. Whether it was some mode of the divine humility, 
or some truth of which we see the shadows in the longer domestic tutelage of the higher creatures of the earth. I do not propose to speculate. I mention it simply as an example of the sort of thing that does in any case give rise to speculations, quite apart from recognized religious speculations. Now the whole story is full of these things. It is not by any means, as baldly presented in print, a story that is easy to get to the bottom of. It is anything but what these people talk of as a simple gospel. Relatively speaking, it is the gospel that has the mysticism, and the church that has the rationalism. As I should put it, of course, it is the gospel that is the riddle, and the church that is the answer. Tis the gift to be simple, tis the gift to be free, tis the gift to come down where we ought to be, and when we find ourselves in the place just right, twill be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right.